when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was, and and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three, Jesus said, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, okay, I'll go and do likewise. Okay, the message of Luke 10. Live a life of mercy. Serve the neediest. Serve the messiest. Don't be like the overly religious who look to their life of religion to save them. And don't be like the irreligious who, for, ironically, almost exactly the opposite reasons, look to their life of good deeds or maybe their right ideas to save themselves. Such self-salvation projects will never manage to facilitate real life, much less eternal life. This is what Jesus is telling us. But look to God for your salvation and let his mercy shine through you. All right, so how does mercy operate? What does mercy look like? Well, I think Jesus tells us this. Mercy, first of all, mercy engages the needy. In fact, the neediest. Secondly, mercy feels something. Jesus had pity on the guy. I mean, not Jesus, the Samaritan had pity on the guy. Mercy does something. He went over and bandaged him, poured oil and salve on him. Mercy costs something. And that's an important thing to remember. He took out two silver coins and said he would come back and cover all of his charges. And finally, mercy demonstrates our relationship with God. At the end of it, Jesus says, which of these fulfilled the law? And the guy says, well, the one who has mercy on him. Yeah, that's right, Jesus says. You go and do likewise. Jesus is telling this legal expert, and he's telling us to be like this. That's the general idea behind Uh, Luke chapter 10. We should let God's mercy flow through us to others. We should live a life of mercy and not be like the priest or the Levite who walked by on the other side. But he's telling us much more than that. He's telling us, in fact, that we can have this eternal kind of life now. I want you to listen to the introduction, again, to uh, Dallas Willard's book called Renovation of the Heart. Dallas Willard is a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. And he begins his book, Renovation of the Heart, with this. When we open ourselves to the writings of the New Testament, when we absorb our minds and hearts in one of the Gospels, for example, or in letters such as Ephesians or 1 Peter, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us is that we are looking into another world, another life. It's a divine world and a divine life. It's a life in the, quote, kingdom of the heavens, end quote. Yet it's a world and a life that ordinary people have entered and are entering even now. It's a world that seems open to us and beckons to us to enter. We actually feel its call. The amazing promises to those who give their life to this new world through their confidence in Jesus leap out at us from every page. For example, we read Jesus' own words that those who give themselves to him will receive a, quote, 
living water, end quote. That is the Spirit of God Himself that will keep them from ever again being thirsty or being driven and ruled by unsatisfied and unsatisfying desires. And that this water will become a well or a spring of such water gushing up to eternal life. Indeed, it will even become rivers of living water, he says, flowing from the center of the believer's life to a thirsty world. At another place, Jesus says, Listen, truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be judged, but he has crossed over from death to life. Or we read Paul's prayer that believers would, quote, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled with all the fullness of God by the power at work within us that is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can even ask or imagine. Or Peter's words about how those who love and trust Jesus, quote, rejoice in an indescribable and glorious joy, end quote, with, quote, genuine mutual love pouring from their hearts, ridding themselves of all malice and all guile, insecurity, envy, and all slander, in other words, being radically renovated, silencing scoffers at the way of Christ by simply doing what is right and casting all their anxiety on God, casting all their anxiety on God because he cares for them. There's a life that we will live forever. There's a life that you and I will live forever if we have a connection with God. Jesus actually believed that, and so did his first followers, and so do many of us. But Jesus also believed that that life, the forever kind of life, that elements of that life we can taste and experience, they're available to us even now. Jesus believed that we could be truly and meaningfully renovated to such a degree we would be able to live an eternal kind of life right here and now. According to Jesus, this renovated life, this eternal kind of life, will be a life of mercy. That's one of the signs that we have it, in fact. As we said, mercy demonstrates our relationship with God. But also, according to Jesus, this life of mercy is one of the means of encouraging a renovated life. How do I go about having my life be renovated? Will I demonstrate acts of mercy? I put myself out there. I take the plunge. What do I do if I want to have eternal life, Jesus? Well, among other things, live a life of mercy. Serve the neediest. Go serve the messiest and the neediest that God places in your path. This is a means of renovation. All right, so what does this look like, this life of mercy? What does a life of mercy look like? What are we like when we're acting out a life of mercy? Well, it doesn't look like religion. The priests and the Levites certainly represent the religious crowd in Jesus' story, but they don't get it right. You know, religion... Sometimes here at Gateway and sometimes in churches like Gateway, religion will get a bad name. Religion is not a bad thing. Religion can be a recipe, but it's not the ingredients. It's not the stuff. It's not the meat. That's what's in our heart. That's you and I leading a renovated life. Religion just provides us the form into which we pour the life that is being renovated by Him. So a life of mercy doesn't look like religion. A life of mercy doesn't look like having the right answers. The legal expert had the right answer. In fact, I want you to notice about this passage, one of the things that intrigues me about this is that Jesus doesn't give this guy the right answer. 
Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Well, you must surrender your life completely to God. You must find out who He is. You know what? He's right in front of you. You can identify Him fully by seeing me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't tell this guy any of that. He doesn't give him the right answer. What He does is provoke his heart because Jesus is always after what's underneath. It's not about having the right answers. It's not about being religious. Well, what does a life of mercy look like? Mercy looks like Jose, who agrees to have lunch with his work colleague, Philip. He knows that no one else will go because Philip is difficult to be with. When Philip casually asks how his weekend went, Jose relates that he went on a men's retreat that provided spiritual resources for forgiving people who have wronged us over the years. When Philip raises his eyebrows and says, that's interesting, Jose takes the plunge. And he mentions that the thing that helped him most was the idea that even though he hasn't given God his due, God still offers him forgiveness through Jesus. Mercy looks like Mark, who during the draft for the sixth grade house league basketball team takes Kenny in the fifth round. Kenny has been the last kid chosen in the last round for the last two years because he's a special needs boy who has difficulty playing. But Mark looks forward to having Kenny on his team, and he tells that to Kenny's mom, Diane. Mark tells Diane that he loves how hard Kenny works. Mark works hard to help the other kids understand and accept Kenny. He designs his practice drills, in fact, not only to teach basketball, but to involve Kenny. By the end of the season, Diane is in tears when she thanks Mark for the season. And when she asks why Mark would pay such attention to Kenny, Mark takes the plunge. He tells Diane that most of the time he feels like a special needs kid spiritually, but that God has been so patient and kind with him, how could he not be the same? He tells Diane that there's a family at his church that he would encourage her to talk to. He thinks they would be a great source of support. Mercy looks like the Smith small group who offered to pay the mortgage for the Kendricks for two months since Will Kendrick was laid off and his unemployment has just ended. Mercy looks like Dorothy and David who invite Rachel to live with them when she loses her apartment. Mercy looks like Raphael who leads a group from his church to visit the youth detention center every Saturday. It looks like Sanvi who prays hard for her friend Ananya every day for months. Finally, one day at lunch, the topic of religion comes up and Sanvi takes the plunge. She tells Ananya that she's a Christian. She talks about how she became a Christian at a weekend getaway where she heard an Indian man tell about his own faith journey, explaining the difference between following Jesus and Hinduism. Ananya agrees to read a book with Sanvi and to accompany her sometime to her small group. Mercy looks like Joe, who has a longtime friend from college named Pete who's a musician. Pete's general anxiety and worry drives most of his friends crazy, and his performance anxiety is actually harming his career. Joe has been the only sympathetic listener for some time, but finally, bluntly, Joe asks Pete to explore the Christian faith with him. I think it's the only thing that will help you overcome your problem, Joe says. Pete's taken aback, but after a while he expresses interest mainly out of desperation. So Joe warns him, if Christianity is going to be any help at all, it will only be a help to you if you come to believe that it's not only helpful, but true. Pete doesn't want to go to any Christian gathering, so they start studying the Bible together and listening to sermons and lectures, and they discuss them together. Mercy looks like Don, who comes to faith in Christ through a small group meeting in one of his neighbor's houses. 
When Don decides to get baptized, he invites several of his non-Christian friends. He tells his own story at the service, including honest confessions about his feelings of unworthiness and the addictions that those feelings led him to and his struggles with intense doubt. He takes his friends out to lunch afterwards and asks them to tell him honestly what they thought. One friend seemed very moved, so Don invites him to the same small group. Living a life of mercy is one of the means of renovating our lives. There are two dangers, I think, for living a life of mercy. There are two ditches to avoid if you and I are going to stay on the path of mercy. On the one hand, we could try to be more merciful out of our own effort, out of our own desire to be good. We could design exercises for ourselves and for our family that would help us become more like this kind of a person. We could do it out of a spirit of religion. We could hear a sermon like this and think, oh, I need to be a better person. I've got to go try to be a better person. Bernard of Clairvaux was right when he said, the man who is wise, therefore, will see his life as more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives, but the reservoir retains water till it is filled, then discharges the overflow without loss to itself. If we're going to lead a renovated life, then we'll learn how to allow His mercy to fill us inwardly until it flows out to others naturally. On the other hand, we can keep whatever God has given us to ourselves. We can avoid a life of mercy. We can hoard our blessings. We can experience God's provision, which we have, and His presence, and we can act like it's all about us. We can become consumers of God instead of partakers in Him. We can find ourselves asking questions like, what am I getting out of this church or this small group or this project? Or how is it benefiting me? And ironically, the more we try to make it about our own benefit, even if it's about our own life being renovated, the more we try to make it about our own benefit, the less we are truly benefited. Listen to this. In Paul's letter to Philemon, verse 6, it's a little letter that Paul wrote to a, a young disciple of his. It's at the back of the New Testament. He encourages the young Christian by saying this, I pray that you, Philemon, may be active, listen, that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. It's as if Paul is saying that we can't fully get it unless we give it away. So Jesus encourages us to live a life of mercy. To be merciful people. To not walk on the other side of the street, but to step in to the neediest and the messiest of situations. And I have to say, thinking through this and praying through this and preparing for this morning, I realized I'm actually very proud to be associated with this congregation of people. If you're visiting Gateway today, if you, this is your first time or if you've been here two or three times, thanks so much for coming. Hey, let me encourage you. Once a month, we do a thing we call Soup with the Pastor, where we just make a lunch over at our office, which is right down the street. You can get directions from us right after church and hang out and uh, talk about Gateway, answer any questions you might have. Sometimes we answer theological questions. Sometimes we answer questions about our history. Sometimes we answer financial questions. The last several times, we've talked a lot about our building and where we are and what our plans are. We'd love for you to come if you're visiting with us. And thanks for being here. I want you to know something today before you even go to soup with the pastor. 
This may not be the congregation for you, and if it's not the congregation for you, please don't stay. Go find the congregation that is the congregation for you, the body that you fit in. But I do want you to know something about the character of this congregation. This is a profoundly merciful congregation. You know, I literally, and I should probably post these sometimes, except I think in many cases it's inappropriate to share, but I had pages of stories, examples of mercy from this congregation. None of those stories are from this congregation. They're from friends of mine or from a book I was reading. But I have pages of those stories from you, from Gateway. Individuals, small groups, acts of mercy. I didn't share those here because, again, the detailed circumstances of many of them would be inappropriate to share in this setting. But I'm really proud to be associated with this congregation. They say often that a congregation, especially a congregation the size of Gateway, will get a lot of its character and its personality from leadership. I want you to know this is not humility. You did not get that from me. That is your connection to God, your connection with one another. This is a profoundly merciful congregation. You've cared for me and for my family. Thank you. For many of us, a lesson like today, for many of us, a lesson like today should come as an encouragement. I want you to know that we said last week, you know, you're being renovated. Those of us on the outside of you can see it. You are being, being renovated more than you realize. More and more, more of you are becoming more and more like Jesus because of God's work in your life and because you are expressing His work and that both demonstrates your connection with Him and it also encourages that connection and it encourages that change in our lives. Blessed are the merciful. For you will receive mercy and your life will be renovated, not all at once, but over time. For many of us here at Gateway, this lesson today should be an encouragement. Thank you. And bless you. You don't need my blessing. you got God's blessing. For a few of us, a lesson like today comes as a challenge. We have made it about ourselves. We have lived small lives. We've maybe gone to big places, but we've lived small lives. We've been completely self-absorbed. It's all about us. You know what? Let's say this in conclusion. This is the danger. What we're talking about this morning, this is why oppressive anxiety and depression and even grief are dangerous for us. Today, this lesson, is why those are dangerous for us. Look, depression is usually not healthy, but it's often inevitable and natural. It's sometimes unavoidable given the circumstances of our lives. Grief is often in and of itself a very healthy, normal, natural response to loss and disappointment, and it must be processed. And it must be entertained. And sometimes it takes a long time to work through the grief process or the depression process. But we get encouragement from every therapist and counselor I've ever read or listened to not to get stuck there. Because when you get stuck there, your life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It becomes about you. And then what happens is you cut off God's capacity to change you. You cut off the flow of His mercy to you because design is for that mercy to flow to you and then through you out to others. You become the conduit for His mercy. 
This is how we were built. This is how we were designed. And some of you know this. I have a couple of great stories, again, from Gateway, but I'm not going to tell them because I didn't get permission. But great stories of you, some of you, who entered some kind of a situation desperately hurting or depressed or burdened with worry, and then circumstances found you in such a situation that you were almost forced, or maybe you weren't forced, maybe you did it before you even realized it, offering yourself to someone else, giving them counsel, or giving them advice, or giving them wisdom, or serving them in some way, and then at the end of it, you found yourself blessed. You found yourself feeling better. You found yourself relieved. Because you and I were designed to live that kind of life. You and I were designed to take the plunge. So for those of us this morning who need to be reminded not to make it about ourselves, good Lord, give us that reminder. And let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you help us to look beyond ourselves, to live lives of mercy, lives that are being renovated by You so that we live the eternal kind of life right here and now. We get to experience tastes of what it's like to be in Your presence fully, naked and unashamed. God, I pray that You would open our eyes to the neediest and the lowliest and the hurting that are in our path. I pray that You would open our eyes to our neighbor. Oh Lord, I pray especially this morning for anyone here who may be on the verge of being stuck in anxiety or depression or grief or sin. I ask, Father, that You would relieve in Jesus' name. That You would encourage. That You would breathe life that You would draw us into Your presence. And then being in Your presence, Lord, that we would spill that out to others. Lord, this week I pray that we would take the plunge. That we would get outside of ourselves and into the heart and life and the mess of others around us. Lord, I thank You so much for the character of mercy that You are baking into this body of believers. I thank You for the heart forgiving for the many acts of mercy that are astounding and beautiful and blessed. Lord, I pray for some of those who are deep in the trenches of doling out mercy. Father, I pray that they would not grow weary in doing good, knowing that in due season they would reap a harvest of righteousness. We honor You and bless You this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray.